Mental Health HESI Review, based on the comprehensive review, review book from Elsevier, the sixth edition. I've seen the fifth edition as well, which is red, and it's just as good. So to start off with, therapeutic communication. Remember those helpful techniques, the things that we are supposed to do, the good things when communicating. We acknowledge their opinions and their statements without imposing our own values or judgment. We clarify the process of making sure that you understood the meaning of what they said. So sometimes a patient will talk for several minutes in a row. You might want to use a couple techniques there. You might want to summarize what they're saying, restate it, and then also clarify that, you know, am I hearing you correctly when you say you're having issues with your relationship with your mother? So maybe they talk for several minutes about a topic, difficulty with their mother, how can we clarify and make sure we're hearing what they said? Um, remember from past exams, the question about uh, the patient that tells you, I've had, I had a nightmare last night and I dreamt I was being stoned. We know the word stoned has different meanings. So we want to clarify what, you know, what, what did that mean to them? Did it mean a substance use? Did it mean that they were stoned to death, meaning stones were thrown at them? So clarifying would be, did I get the meaning that the patient is saying? Confrontation um, should be done judiciously, calling attention to inconsistent behavior. This is not confrontation as in fighting with the patient. This is just a general inconsistency. So let's say we see the patient, um, maybe in med education group, the patient says, uh, you know, my medications are so important to me, I always take them. And then later on in the evening, the nurse goes to offer medications and the patient says, you know, refuses them. Then the next day, treatment team might confront that patient and say, you said that you wanted to take medications. You, um, you said you were okay with that and then you didn't take them. Could we talk about that? That's an inconsistency. Focusing. This is assisting the client to explore a specific topic, which may include sharing perceptions and theme identification. So this is a fun one because you might have a patient talk, 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 and um, they say they're there for uh, divorce problems. You know, they're, they're having a divorce, they're getting a divorce, and they're having relationship problems. But every minute or two as they're talking, they say things about their father. So, you know, I have such a poor relationship, but it's exactly what my dad did to my mom. And, you know, I can't believe that he's making me go through a divorce and men are the worst. And then they throw in something about the father again. Focusing would be taking that theme out of the conversation and saying something by the nurse. Um, I've noticed that you mentioned your father several times. Um, so, so bringing that to their attention, because oftentimes they don't, they're focused on the divorce or they're focused on the here and now, and they're not seeing that they bring up the same theme over and over of something else. Information giving. This is just feedback about the client's observed behavior. Um, this works a lot of the time. Maybe you're trying to open up to the client or you're trying to start the conversation and you say, your face looks pretty sad today, or you look more sad today than yesterday. What's going on? You know, a way to show them that you are paying attention, you are observant, and you're, you're giving them feedback. You know, what, what has gone on that's changed? Open-ended questions. We know those backwards and forwards. Reflecting or restating. 
This is how we paraphrase and we repeat what the client said. It's not just like a parrot. They don't say, um, I want to end my life. And, and the nurse says, you want to end your life? Like we don't say the same words back and forth. It's not just like a parrot. It is more reflecting. You know, they say a, a whole paragraph of information and then we try to restate it in a, a more simplified way. Silence. As we know, silence can be therapeutic. Um, it often leaves your patient feeling a little awkward, so they have to fill the science, or the science, the silence. We don't want to use it, though, with a paranoid client because they may interpret it um, differently as something with their paranoia. So, But it can be used very successfully with depressed clients, uh, anxious clients. They want to fill in the space. They don't like the feeling of silence, and so they keep talking. Suggesting. We know we're never supposed to tell them what to do, but we can kindly suggest things. So have you ever considered this? Another great way to suggest without telling them what to do or giving advice is to say, I've had a number of patients that have tried yoga. Would that ever work for you? Something like that. I'm saying it worked for other people, not saying to the patient, you should try yoga. It works for everyone. Have you ever, have you ever considered? More about therapeutic communication. So there, I'm sorry about the copy on this picture. It's hard to see. Um, there are some useful phrases. Things like, tell me more about, or go on, or I'd like to discuss what you're thinking. What are your thoughts? Are you saying that, dot, dot, dot. Forbidden phrases are the ones that should not be used. Um, avoid them at all costs. They make the person feel uncomfortable. They might put the patient on the defense. Um, they might actually be, you know, avoid changing the subject. It might, it might make them feel like you don't care about what they're saying and you're just trying to get out of the conversation. So you're just like, oh, how's the weather? We don't do that. So things to avoid at all costs. Starting the sentence with you should or you'll have to, you can't. If it were me, we should never use that phrase, right? Because it's not about you. Um, why don't you? So not only do we not use the why, but also, again, why don't you? You know, we're telling them what to do. I think you. It's the policy on this unit. Whenever you use that with a patient, sometimes it's said. Sometimes the provider will say it. Um, sometimes it's the last thing that we can do to get across to them. But remember when we say things like, it's the policy, we're not explaining. We're not helping them to understand where we're coming from. We're just saying, it's the policy, which basically makes a patient feel shut down. Like, oh, it's the policy. I should just shut up. You know, think about as a student there. I'm sure there's been times in there's definitely been times when I was an employee, um, you know, well, it's the policy. It's how we do things. It often just makes the person feel like, okay, there's no room for conversation. There's my opinions don't matter. Uh, and then uh, avoid words like good, bad, right, wrong, nice. Um, as you see there, avoid why. Just a second. Not good because we know we won't be with them in a second. And then I know. Avoid the I know statements. I know. I know what you're going through. Or I know I've been there too. It's not about you, nurse. Hesse hint. 
A question concerning nurse-client confidentiality appears often on the NCLEX. For the nurse to tell a client that the nurse for the nurse to tell a client that the nurse will not tell anyone about their discussion puts the nurse in a difficult position. Some inf information must be shared with other team members for the client's safety. So keep that one in mind, and we've already had questions like that. There are, there's never a time where it's good for the patient to say, I only trust you, or you're the only nurse I can open up to. While that might feel good for our confidence, it's a bad sign. We should always, we, we, we should never be saying to the patient, yes, I will keep this in, in firm confidentiality, or I will, I won't tell anyone. Because at any time, if they disclose a dangerous plan for suicide or homicide, we have to tell the other providers. We, we have to go against that nurse-patient relationship. And we should explain that during the orientation phase of building that bond. I'm your nurse today. Um, you know, I'll be working with you. And remember, if there are things that um, are dangerous, I will have to tell the other staff members. But anything else you say will be kept confidential. Your thoughts and feelings will be kept confidential. But if it's unsafe, you know, or if you're having thoughts of harming someone, I might have to let them know to keep them safe. All right, another HESI hint for anxiety and related disorders. When a nurse encounters a very anxious client, the nurse must first assess the nurse's own level of anxiety and remain calm. A calm nurse helps the client gain control, decrease anxiety, and increase feelings of security. So, right off the bat, we as humans, a person comes to us worked up and anxious and talking fast, that's what we naturally do. Our natural human response is to get worked up, start talking fast, find out how we can help. But actually, the nurse, it's very important to be calm, slower to react. Uh, we, we show them, it's okay here. You're safe here. You're secure. Anxiety is very contagious and easily transferred from client to nurse and nurse to client. So in the opposite way, you know, maybe you're late to work or maybe you, um, it's a holiday and you don't really want to be there and you're worried how your family's doing without you or something. Our emotions can transfer to patients and we need to always keep those in check. So anxiety and related disorders. Here's a reminder of those common phobias. Um, we talked about a little bit in class, not very much, but um, acrophobia is the fear of heights. Agoraphobia is that fear of crowds or open spaces. Um, often these people will not go to the grocery store or any public events. Claustrophobia, the fear of closed in spaces. Hydrophobia, fear of water, social anxiety disorder. And tanatophobia, I don't know. I've never said that. Whatever. Fear of death, which many, many people have. Nursing assessment. We are always assessing their coping styles. We always say things like, what has worked for you before when you felt anxious? Uh, what have you done before to calm down? And then we also know that there are some negative type of coping styles that exist. Um, maladaptive and adaptive. Uh, these are our defense mechanisms, remember? That is what is helping us to cope. Our brain is automatically coping with things, um, either subliminally or consciously. So some of those defense mechanisms are listed, uh, displacement, projection, repression, and sublimation. 
Um, remember, they we actually had a uh, we went over in lab. Actually, we went over maybe 15 different types. There are a lot of different types. Just understand the purpose of them. Why does a person use projection? It's because they're uncomfortable with their feeling. And so they're projecting it on someone else. Like it's their fault. Repression. Why do they repress or suppress? They have an uncomfortable memory or feeling that they're trying to ignore. So it's easier for them to either subconsciously or consciously push it down repression, pushing it down, suppression, pushing it down. Your brain's pushing it down. All right. Um, autonomic hyperactivity, um, understanding that there are times where a person is, person is anxious and we need to be looking at those vital signs. We need to see what their blood pressure and heart rate are doing. Are they at risk for stroke because they are so high? Uh, panic attacks that usually peak at 10 minutes, but can last up to 30 minutes. Remembering that key part, or if you remember the video with the model, um, what that looks like. She could barely talk. She could barely speak, catch her breath. Um, panic attacks are often brief. A lot of times your patients will come to the ER after the panic attack is already over uh, because it was so brief. Uh, they come out of the blue. They're not for a reason. Even as nurses, though, we often think, oh, what led up to this? What were the triggers? Usually the panic attack occurs out of nowhere. It's not directly after the source of stress. It's just normal daily functioning and boom, have a panic attack. Now, there are triggers as far as there's stress going on in their lives or there are family situations, but the panic attack usually just springs up. Um, possible use of drugs and alcohol to decrease anxiety. Our anxious patients are at a high risk for abusing substances because anxiety is uncomfortable. They do not like that feeling. They don't like the palm sweating and the rapid heart rate and palpitations and just feeling so agitated. So they are at a great risk for using substances. Hesse hint. When a client describes a phobia or expresses an unreasonable fear, the nurse should acknowledge the feeling fear and refrain from exposing the client to the identified fear. After trust is established, a desensitization process may be prescribed. Desensitization is the nursing intervention for phobia disorders. We mentioned this before and oftentimes the provider is who leads this type of desensitization. Uh, when we talked about heights, like perhaps on day one of treatment, we go to the first floor. And day two, we go to the second floor and so on. That is slowly immersing the person in their fear. Steps. That's desensitization. We're doing it little by little. Do you guys remember what the word was when we expose something to their fear all at once? Maybe. Yeah. Okay. It was flooding. So when we just, let's say someone's afraid of water and we throw them in a pool. That's flooding. Instead of doing like a baby pool, dip your toe in slowly, slowly, slowly. So what do we do nursing intervention wise? Our patient is anxious. We have to establish trust. We listen. We use a calm approach, direct and simple questions. Always simple questions. No metaphors, nothing that they have to figure out. Direct questions that, you know, with, with a short amount of words. Remain with the client. Do not leave them alone. Provide a safe environment with reduced stimuli. Lower the lights, lower the sounds, less people in the room, less beeping, 
if a TV's up loud, turn it down. Um, soft colors, things like that, reduce the stimuli. Other things we can do, draw client's attention away from the feared object or situation, assist the client to recognize the factors associated with the feared stimuli that precipitate a phobic response. Discuss the client alternative coping strategies and encourage the use of such alternatives. So we say to the client, what have you done in the past to handle things? And the client says, oh, well, I honestly, I drink alcohol. I get drunk when I feel anxious or I go to sleep. Okay, let's talk about those. It seems as if you're using those strategies and yet you're still becoming anxious. What other ways could we, you know, what other behaviors have you tried before? Or maybe are you aware of any other things you'd like to try? You know, what can we talk to them about as far as relaxation techniques? And then also the nurse is there to role play. Um, they show how to use the techniques. Also, they're there to, to bounce ideas off and use the coping skills. Maybe it's making the patient anxious at the thought of talking to their, their boyfriend about breaking up. Okay, the nurse will play the role of the boyfriend. Go ahead, patient. How are, what are you going to say? And the patient can practice that communication. Suggest substitution of positive thoughts for negative ones. Assist in desensitizing the client. Gradually and systematically introduce the client to anxiety-producing stimuli, which is desensitization. Pair the anxiety-producing stimuli with another response, such as relaxation or exercise. So when I do become anxious during a test, I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to take a moment and then refocus. <coughs> Encourage them to share their fears and feelings with others. Provide positive reinforcement whenever a decrease in the phobia reaction occurs. So when they become less and less scared, hey, great, I see some progress. Um, I've really noticed that you're becoming less scared when we talk about this topic. Administer anti-anxiety meds, administer your SSRIs, and teach to decrease in intake of caffeine and nicotine, your uppers. Um, and that would also have to do with illicit drugs as well. Anything that's an upper is going to make the person more anxious. So let's say we have a patient and they're newly diagnosed with anxiety. They've never been on any medications before. What medication will be prescribed? It's SSRI because we don't straight go to the ben we don't go straight to the benzos because they have addictive qualities. We don't go straight to anti-anxiety in general because they can be abused. Also because these people might be using alcohol and that would be a, a deadly combination. So SSRIs are first. Here's a list of your benzodiazepines. These are things that would be prescribed if SSRIs are not working, or if maybe we need to give them something rapid acting right now to help them calm down. So not for long-term use, definitely not, but just to reduce the anxiety right now, or if we think they're, uh, they're possibly going to have a seizure. Here are the names. Um, we have our Librium, Valium, um, Ativan. We have Boosperone down here. Remember, that is your non-benzo. So Boost Bar was the name of that. It reduces anxiety and it helps control symptoms like that insomnia and palpitations, but it's a non-benzo. So SSRI didn't work. Next step, probably Boost Bar. Next step, benzo, uh, Ativan or something. Now, if I have someone in a, an immediate crisis here in front of me or they're likely to have a seizure, we're going straight to the benzos.
SSRIs. Here is a review table of the SSRIs that exist, um, what they're commonly prescribed for, and what they often, what the side effects often are, okay? So what can they be used for? All of these things, depression, anxiety, panic disorder, aggression, um, OCD. We often see um, Celexa for an, uh, anorexia, OCD, depression. So some of the things that go along with those, we know that for some people it can actually keep them awake and some people it causes drowsiness. So we'll educate the patient. Hey, it takes two to six weeks to work, typically two to four. Um, but it, it takes a while to work, so keep with it. Take it at night if it makes you drowsy, or take it in the morning if it keeps you awake. Uh, headache usually goes away in a couple of days if you experience that. You might notice some sexual dysfunction. Definitely bring that up to the provider. Let us know if you get an allergic reaction or a rash. That is a problem. Uh, weight gain is common with, anti, uh, with SSRIs. So antidepressants often will cause weight gain let us know. Then here on the right side, you're going to see some of those more um, serious side effects to monitor for. Uh, serotonin syndrome, remember too much serotonin, what does it look like? They're going to have a change in mental status, agitation, myoclonus, so hyperreflexia. They're going to have like a stiffening of the muscles, fever, 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 fever. Fever is a sign of serotonin syndrome and also neuroleptic malignant syndrome. We got to bring their temp down right away. Ataxia, diarrhea, sweating, shivering. That's when we have serotonin syndrome. What would be the first thing the nurse would do? You think somebody has serotonin syndrome or you think they have NMS from an antipsychotic. What does the nurse do first? Stop the med, right? Stop the med. Gotta stop the med because it's what's causing it. So, oh, I have a patient, they're on Prozac. Make sure that med is stopped. We talk to the provider. Yes, Sam, very good. Stop the drug causing it, very good. Yes. Um, also, we caution, remember that uh, over-the-counter medications are marketed to help with depression. So a lot of times your patients will come in, they'll say, oh, I use St. John's wort. If they take St. John's wort and an SSRI or another kind of antidepressant, they can have liver complications. So we want to make sure we assess not only for the meds they take prescribed, but what are they taking over the counter. Other, S or other antidepressants, we have our SNRIs, like our um, Cymbalta and things like that. They often will be indicated for depression, anxiety, same thing as our SSRIs. Some of the adverse reactions we see may be nausea, dry mouth, insomnia, um, fatigue, depressed appetite, um, but you will also see weight gain sometimes as well, sexual dysfunction. Again, in the in implications, we never take these with MAOIs. Remember that MAOIs are hardly even prescribed these days, but if you ever come across a person on an MAOI, know that it interacts with everything. What else does it interact with? What can they not eat or drink? So the, the MAOI, you can't have like um, salamis and cheese, aged cheeses and smoked fish and some wines. They have tyramine, that protein that's going to make them have a hypertensive crisis if they eat that and take an MAOI. 
All right. Our other category are norepinephrine dopamine reuptake. Um, typically, there's not many meds in this category, but Wellbutrin does fall in this category. So that's usually the one you think of when you think of this category. Wellbutrin. We know Wellbutrin can help us with anxiety and depression and sleep disturbances, but it can also help with smoking cessation. So if it's, um, it depends which way it's being prescribed for. We know that they say it will help with sleep disturbances, but sometimes people will actually become anxious and sleep disturbed because of Wellbutrin. So if you have a patient that is depressed or having anxiety with depression, this can pump them up too much and leave them uh, shaky and anxious. So this does not work for everybody. It might help your only depressed client, but anxiety, will, it'll jack them up too much. Um, there is a low seizure uh, threshold. So Wellbutrin has been linked to having seizures. If they're anxious, they have that brain activity going. It can actually cause a seizure. Uh, so if you have a person with a history of seizures, Wellbutrin is not the med for them. Other antidepressants, you got your tricyclics and your MAOIs. Um, tricyclics are okay, but there are old meds. We have SSRIs, we have SNRIs. Tricyclics aren't really used anymore um, because when a patient has these, they're very lethal if they take them in an overdose. So uh, we would never want them to have a large quantity of tricyclics. They do have CNS depression side effects. We would not want them to take them with MAOIs. Nothing can be taken with an MAOI. And, and especially, we don't want them eating tyramine. Uh, wine, smoked fish, aged cheeses, cured meats. All right. So OCD interventions, what does the nurse do when we have a patient who is OCD? The nurse will actively listen to the client's obsessive themes. Actively listen. We're not going to interrupt them, right? Acknowledge the effects the ritualistic acts have on the client. We know that they need to complete their process to feel less anxious. So we let them complete the rituals. Um, we demonstrate empathy. That must be very difficult for you to go through, spending hours and hours on this ritual or feeling, you know, having the same thought in your mind over and over. That must be really difficult. Avoid being judgmental. Provide the client's physical needs. Oftentimes, the obsessive thoughts and the compulsions that they have to do interfere with them eating, sleeping, drinking. So the nurse's role is to remind them, hey, don't forget, we're, you have this physical need. We're having dinner come on over. We allow them to perform the compulsive activity with attention given to safety. So if perhaps their compulsiveness, um, maybe it's picking at their skin or bathing, hand washing, we have to try to limit as much as possible. Work with them. Maybe they feel like they need to do it uh, 30 times in an hour. Okay. Could we work on that and maybe let you do 20 minutes or 20 times? Because I'm concerned about your skin and the skin breakdown that's happening. That's just an example. Explore the meaning and the purpose of the behavior with the client. A great way to do this is saying, when did you notice this starting? Did this, uh, you know, how old were you when this started? Uh, what happened around that time? Or saying, um, have you ever noticed that it's worse or better at different times? And then exploring that. Oh, it, it was worse when you were in college or it was worse before an exam, something like that. Trying to link why these rituals are getting worse. 
avoid punishing or criticizing, establish routine to avoid anxiety producing changes. We let these folks know way in advance when there's a schedule change. Um, somebody that has OCD is going to be very disrupted by any schedule change or change in routine. So we let them know as soon as we know it's happening. We assist them with learning alternative methods of dealing with stress. We avoid reinforcing the compulsive behavior like, great, wash your hands again. Yeah, that was, that was good thinking. Limit the amount of time for performance of rituals and encourage the client to gradually decrease over time. So we're limiting the time. We're not interrupting them while they're in the cycle, but we're talking to them later on and saying, you know, I noticed in the morning it takes you two hours to get ready. Maybe tomorrow we could try for an hour and 45 minutes. We're trying to reduce the time slowly. We can give them anti-anxiety meds and we can administer our SSRIs or tricyclic antidepressants if our SSRIs and SNRIs aren't working. Hesse hint, the best time for interaction with a client is at the completion of the performed ritual. The client's anxiety is lowest at that time. Therefore, it's the optimal time for learning. Patient needs to make sure that the uh, door is locked 57 times. Let's let them do that, and then we'll talk. Somatic disorders. We just learned about these ones, right? Pain or a physical complaint is being brought forth instead of an emotional distress problem. So there's an absence of emotional concern about physical impairments sometimes. Um, I don't think I went over in class, but that's called label indifférence. French, maybe I did. Um, that's when they have a serious health problem. They believe that they've had a heart attack or stroke, and yet they don't look like they care. They're just reporting the symptoms. They are persistently preoccupied with a lack of physical health and need for further testing. This question on an exam really got some people, really got you guys. Remember, there's no physiologic base for the complaint. So when they go to the doctor, we look at scans, we do lab work, we, we see the x-ray. There's no physiologic basis. We cannot point on their scans, oh, you're having stomach pain and you have a tumor in your stomach. There's no physiologic basis, but they are having physiologic symptoms. They are having real pain. They're not, it's not, um, it's not like Munchausen's or something. They're actually experiencing pain and a difficulty, but there's no reason for it in the body. It's because they're having emotional anxiety, stress, depression coming out in a physical way. These, these patients will often doctor shop, meaning they go to several different providers. Um, they must be worked up medically just in case every time they come in, we can't do the... We often want to say, oh, they're fine. They were here earlier this week, but we do still have to work them up. We have to take their physical complaints seriously. Then we help the client identify the connection between their, their ailments that they're going through and their emotions. Ah, it seems like that you, you typically have chest pain um, every time it's uh, every Monday when it's time to go back to work or whatever it is. We are always non-judgmental. Even if we've seen the, the patient many times, we don't say things like, oh, here you are again, or wow, you're quite, you're quite a frequent flyer. No, we're non-judgmental. Dissociative disorders. Remember, this is when they are dissociating from reality. Uh, something is uncomfortable. 
unconsciously or consciously, they are separating themselves from that information. So these disorders are rarely encountered. They involve alteration in the function of consciousness, personality, memory, and identity. What falls under dissociative disorders? Dissociative fugue. Remember, they just drive, they leave their area, they have no idea. They don't remember their name. Sometimes they remember some facts, but most of the time they don't know where they got, how they got there. Why am I there? I'm in a different town. I showed up. I don't know these people. And they have no memory of where they're really from. Dissociative disorders may be sudden and temporary or gradual and chronic. Um, another, uh, so short, uh, sudden would be that few. Uh, temp, uh, the gradually, sorry, the gradual or chronic would be something like the dissociative identity disorder. It used to be known as multiple personalities. This is where a person has two or more identities. They simultaneously are working in the brain, but the person usually only remembers their main personality. So if the other personality or personalities did something, they often won't remember it. It's the way that they're protecting themselves from stress. So they go through a stressful situation, you'll see the other personality come out. That personality is going to handle the stressful behavior that's happening. Um, dissociative amnesia. This is a sudden temporary inability to recall extensive personal events. The memory loss includes gaps in the memory for extended periods of time or memories of the precipitating event. So if someone says, I was in a car accident, uh, they, they tell me that I ended up in this hospital because I was, uh, you know, I broke my leg, but I have no memory of the accident. If they didn't have a head injury, we need to start thinking, is this dissociative disorder? Are they having an amnesia that's protecting them from the accident? Maybe the accident was their fault and they're blocking out the memory unconsciously of what happened. So nursing assessment, we have to make sure that we ask the right questions. Are they feeling depressed, having mood swings, insomnia? Is there a potential for suicide? Imagine if you couldn't remember who you were or where you're from. I would definitely think the risk of suicide is high at that time. That's very uncomfortable. Who am I? Where do I belong? There are varying degrees of orientation and varying levels of anxiety impairment of social and occupational functioning, and drug and alcohol use are of definite concern. For these patients, we are reducing the environmental stimulation to decrease anxiety. Personality disorders, right? We learned about these. There are not nine types. There's actually 10 types. I don't know why I put nine types. There's 10, but they're in three subcategories. Um, how do we assess these people? Well, we assess the degree of the social impairment that that personality disorder is causing. Is it causing them to avoid people or stay away? Is it causing them to manipulate others? Is it causing them to um, be a risk to themselves or others? What personality disorder most likely harms themselves? Who is that? Who does that risky behavior and will harm themselves? Very impulsively, without even thinking. Borderlines. That's right. Borderlines, definitely. Um, and so we are looking at that manipulative behavior. Perhaps, oh, this was another one on an exam that wasn't 100%. Antisocial personality disorder. 
They do want to be around people. Why? Because they want stuff from people. So when you see the term antisocial personality, it doesn't mean that they're avoidant. It doesn't mean that they're going to stay away from others. It means they're going to steal. They're going to steal and manipulate and lie and harm anyone that gets in their way of what they want. Antisocial people sometimes are sickeningly sweet. They are used car salesmen, typically. You know, oh, hey, how can I manipulate to get what I want? So they do like to be around people. Uh, nursing plans and interventions. We have to establish trust, use a very straightforward approach, uh, have boundaries always, set the limits, especially with your antisocial. Protect the client from injury from themselves or others. Assist the client to recognize manipulative behavior. Focus on the client's strengths and accomplishments. Set limits on manipulative behavior when necessary. Reinforce independent, responsible behaviors. Assist the client to recognize the need to respect the needs and the rights of others. And encourage socialization. Many, many times, especially your antisocial, your narcissistic, they are unable to, they don't know what empathy is. They don't know how to put themselves in other people's shoes. They don't know how to really care for others because their mind is always on themselves. So we teach them. This is how you interact with people. Here's how you improve skills. Uh, it's not all about you and things like that. Oh, I didn't mean to go that far. Hesse Hint, personality disorders are long-standing behavioral traits that are maladaptive responses to anxiety and that cause difficulty in relating to and working with other individuals. Remember, that's why they're personality disorders because they affect relationships. Whereas OCD, we just learned about it a couple slides ago. That is a mental health disorder, but there's OCPD, OC personality disorder, and that affects relationships. So it's not a mental health disorder per se, it's a personality disorder. So mood disorders, what do they look like? Mood disorders, they, oh, sorry, sorry about that. Um, they look like labile. Remember, if we have a mood disorder, we have quick highs and quick lows. Um, labile is the word for that, L-A-B-I-L-E. So we're going to see the, the highs and the lows. Um, what will they be put on for this mood instability? We're going to see them put on lithium, valproic acid, which is also called uh, Depakote or Valproex. You'll see that. Um, you might also see carbazepine. Um, carbamazepine, sorry, and lamotrigine or lamictal. These are medications that we're going to see to mood stabilize. Lithium is often on exams, often on HESI. Even though in the real world we hardly see it prescribed, we know it's on HESI because they want you to be aware of the electrolyte imbalance, constant lab work, um, what to report if they are toxic levels. So Pay attention to this slide. What's the early signs of toxicity? A little bit of that shaking, diarrhea, vomiting, drowsiness, muscle weakness, lack of coordination. So some early signs. Fine hand tremors. If they're having coarse tremors, uh, lack um, consciousness uh, change, LOC, um, orientation problems, then we're thinking toxic. Other things might be coma, convulsions, and death. So we're always reminding them to get their lab work. Um, the, it affects the electrolytes because of the sodium, 
because it works with sodium. So the use of diuretics would be a no. We would not want them to increase their, their fluid intake by a large amount. That's going to set off the electrolytes as well. We want them to use a consistent amount of salt. Um, pop quiz. Uh, what did I say when a person is toxic? What can we hand them? What would be a quick nursing intervention that we can do right then and there if they're still conscious while we wait for the provider to call us back and order fluids and whatever. What can I offer a patient that has high lithium levels to help them right now if they're conscious? Anybody remember? Okay, salty chips. So salty chips, pretzels, something salty will help them to balance out that lithium level while you're calling the provider and while you're getting orders. Salty stuff. Your other anticonvulsants help with mood disorders. Um, we always want to draw blood levels, especially with Depakote because it is hepatotoxic. So it's very hard on the liver. So liver anything, we want to make sure we're monitoring blood levels. We don't have to monitor them as often as we do with lithium but they are indicated. We need to watch that hepatic and renal function because these anticonvulsants are very hard on those organs. So care of the suicidal patient. This should be quite at the top of your mind, a, a refresher because we just went over this recently. So evaluation of intent. We have to find out, asking them directly, are you having thoughts about harming yourself? Excuse me. We remember that there are people out there that have self-mutilation type of behaviors, and maybe it's not in an attempt to end their life. It's an attempt to release pressure or to, to release emotions. So we need to know from the suicidal client, are they having thoughts about ending their life? Um, we offer the client hope. We, have, we say things like, we have medications and treatments that have helped for other people or that can help you through the bad times. Uh, sometimes you'll have patients come in, sorry, and they are completely helpless and hopeless because they've tried every medication the provider has offered and they haven't worked. Remember, we have other techniques besides medication. We can offer them the TMS therapy, the transmagnetic stimulation. We can offer them um, electroconvulsive therapy. Um, there are other things out there besides just meds. Also talk therapy. We identify the method chosen. The more lethal the method, the higher the probability that an attempt that an attempt is imminent. So what is your plan of harming yourself? The example, a client mentions a shotgun and plans to use the weapon to injure themselves. That would be a hard method. We have to then find out, do they have a gun? Um, <clears throat> do they know how to use a gun? Do they, if they have a gun, do they have access to it or is someone able to go to their home, lock up the gun cabinet, secure the guns, and take the keys? We need to intervene. Also, we determine the availability of the method chosen. So if they tell us something like, um, I am planning to overdose on medications, okay, what medications do you have available and how much? Um, and, and often people will say, well, they're not going to tell us. Why would they tell us what they have? A person in that emotional state will often uh, be honest about what they have and what they've been thinking because they are just at, at rock bottom. Nursing interventions. We express concern. 
I'm very concerned that you're feeling so bad that you want to harm yourself. Tell the client that you will share the information with staff. I need to share this information with staff so that we can keep you safe. Offer the client hope. As we mentioned before, stay with the client. Never leave a suicidal client alone. Legally, the nurse should follow the policy of the institution regarding suicidal clients and should be able to demonstrate that these policies were carried out. Documentation, documentation. Follow the policy regarding the removal of potentially hazardous objects such as razors. So the client is never left alone. And then also we're looking at their belongings and making sure that they've been um, assessed physically, like what we did in lab, go through the belongings and also do a body search, make sure they don't have anything dangerous. We encourage independence once they are not actively suicidal and looking for something to do it with. If needed, assist with personal hygiene and urge the client to initiate grooming activities, even when he or she does not feel like doing so. This helps promote self-esteem and a sense of control. So at the bottom, HESI hint. When answering NCLEX questions or HESI questions, remember that they are working at a Utopia General Hospital. There is plenty of time and staff to provide ideal nursing care. Don't always be thinking about where you work and what real life is like. Um, do not let the realities of clinical situations deter you from choosing the best nursing intervention. Don't say to yourself, oh, well, the best thing would be to be one-on-one -on -one with the patient, but I know staffing won't allow that. Remember, you're, you're working in the perfect world when you take these exams. Schizophrenia. What were those positive symptoms versus the negative symptoms? Does anyone remember what... What do the positive symptoms look like? So positive symptoms add to the patients like hallucinations and that kind of stuff. You got it. So we take a regular person plus they're having hallucinations, delusions, paranoia, agitation. Negative symptoms were the things we take away from a person. So they're going to have lack of apathy, lack of emotion, lack of affect, lack, 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 lack of um, eating, they're going to have difficulty with their walking, things like that. They're, they're blank, lack of. So what do we do with a schizophrenic person? What does our nursing plan include? It, it includes building trust, sitting with mute clients. So if a client is not speaking at all, we say things like this. Um, hello, I'm going to be your nurse today. Um, I see that you're not interested in speaking at this time, but I'm going to sit here for the next 20 minutes. Um, I I'd like to be with you. Then if at any time they, they decide to open up, you're there to listen. We provide safe and secure environments so that there's nothing they can harm themselves with. We assist them with their physical hygiene and ADLs. We understand that mentally they're not able to go through the process of a shower. They might not be able to walk to the shower, but we might have to say to them, okay, now take the soap. Here's the washcloth. Turn on the water. Wash your hair. We might have to actually take them through the steps, even though physically their body can do it. They just can't mentally go through the process. We have a matter-of-fact, non-judgmental approach. We use clear, simple, concrete terms. So we don't say, I'll be there in a minute, because we won't actually be there in 60 seconds. Um, we use no metaphors, no flowery language. It's got to be to the point. We accept and support the client's feelings and use clarification. 
reinforce congruent thinking, stress reality. So like the questions we've had before, maybe the, the, um, the patient says, you know, I'm seeing spiders. We enforce what reality is, or they say, I don't feel safe here, or you've, um, everyone's out to get me. We stress reality. Everyone is not out to get you. We're actually here for you and to help you. Um, so stress reality. Avoid arguing and avoid agreeing with inaccurate communications. Set limits on behavior. Avoid stressful situations. Structure time for activities so as to limit time from withdrawal. So for withdrawal. So oftentimes your patients with schizophrenia will want to hide away. They don't want to interact with others because they're they're hearing hallucinations and seeing hallucinations and they're in a state of just um, disrepair. You know, they are just they're, they're feeling terribly. So we structure activities to get them out of their rooms, participating and distracted from what's going on. We encourage them to identify positive characteristics related to themselves. We praise socially acceptable behavior, which oftentimes we don't use praise, but this is one of the things that we'll do. Hey, Jim, I noticed that you attended morning group. Nice work. Or I've, I noticed that you've been coming out of your room more. What does the nurse notice and how can we show that we're paying attention? We avoid fostering a dependent relationship. So every step that they can do independently, and this goes for all psychiatric patients, we're encouraging them to do on their own. <clears throat> what can I encourage them? I see that they're able to, let's go back to the shower uh, example. Maybe they're able to do about half of the shower on their own. And now the nurse only needs to help with uh, getting them a towel and reminding them to dry off or something like that. We're promoting that independence. What can they do on their own? Um, maybe they say to you, I want to speak with the doctor about my medications. Um, can you call the provider for me? No. If you can call the provider or if you can speak with the provider, that person will be here later on today. I'll set you up a time. How can I push for independence? Promote family involvement in therapy, teaching, and medication compliance. <coughs> so, what's the difference in a person having delusions, meaning their thoughts are not based in reality, and hallucinations, meaning they are being, they are hearing, smelling, seeing things that do not exist? So, if a client is delusional, we encourage them to recognize the distorted reality. We divert their focus from delusional thoughts to reality. Do not permit rumination on false ideas. We come into a patient room. Uh, they're looking at the phone and they say, the, the FBI is tapping my phone. They must be listening to everything I'm saying. The nurse does not say, you're right. That is probably what's going on. Uh, but hey, come over here. We don't want them to continue with the false ideas. Now, if we say, no, that's not going on, and they say, yes, it is, um, we don't fight with them either. So then, okay, agree to disagree. Why don't you come over here and we're going to do this activity together? Do not agree or support the delusions. Avoid arguing about the delusions. Be very matter of fact. Avoid physically touching the client, especially if the delusions are persecutorial. So remember, if they feel like people are out to get them or someone is harming them, we should not touch them. They're going to start thinking that we're in on it. Uh, also, if we're extra nice, they think we're going to be on the delusion, in on it. We monitor and treat the side effects of any antipsychotics or psychotropic drugs. 
and administer anticholinergic drugs. As a refresher, anticholinergics were things like cogentin or artane that we give to a patient so that they don't get EPS, extrapyramidal side effects, um, the akathisia, the, the moving too much, or dystonia where they're, they're rigid, their muscles stop. Uh, that would be EPS, and we give them anticholinergics like cogentin to counteract that. Client is hallucinating. What do we do for the client hallucinating? We protect them from injury. We know that they're having voices that might be telling them to do something, might be commanding them. So we pay attention to the content. Okay, I know the book says don't say what the voices, don't say what are the voices telling you, but you, you need to know what is being said. So what are you hearing? Uh, what, is, what is being said? We need to know if it's commanding them to do something. B, we deny, we avoid denying or arguing with the client about the hallucination. We discuss our observations. You appear to be responding or speaking with something that isn't here in the room with us. Uh, make frequent but brief remarks to interrupt the hallucinations. Remember brief because they need time to respond to you. They're hearing so many things, it takes them a moment to respond. Administer our antipsychotics to get rid of those hallucinations and then monitor for, for the side effects. And if they have a side effect to an antipsychotic, we give them an anticholinergic. Here is a list of meds often given for schizophrenia uh, and the side effects that the nurse might see. So the common side effects we know are EPS. Um, akathisia happens in one to six weeks after initiation. That's when they feel spasmy. Um, when we see Parkinson's, that's when they have the tremors. Um, they might have difficulty with their gait. They're having a shuffling gait, um, muscle rigidity. Dystonia, usually you see that one to two days after treatment. So this is when they have the jerky motion or um, they're having uh, like I always do the neck because it's what I remember most, but um, uh, they might have uh, rigidity in their arms or a problem swallowing, muscle spasms. So those fall under EPS. Remember, those can be changed. Those can be reversed. We give them um, an anticholinergic. We can give it to them IM if they're not able to swallow, you know, and that will help that. Now, a permanent disorder that can happen it can be reversible, but it, it can be permanent, is tardive dyskinesia. That's when they have that involuntary, involuntary lip smacking, tongue rolling. They might have a blinking or a tick motion, and it can be permanent. Even if they're not still taking the med, it can end up being permanent. Uh, I see it's 4.30. Okay. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Remember, uh, they're going to have fever. Here's your anticholinergics at the very bottom, artane and cogentin. Let's see, how many slides did I have left? Oh, that was it. Really? That was the end of the slide? Oh, okay. All right, so we didn't do too bad. So blood dyscrasias, that's just a fancy word for talking about the white blood cells going down. Remember agranulocytosis? That happens with your clozaril, but other antipsychotics as well. Okay, so I hope that this has been somewhat helpful. I 